So this is the, the well-known story of the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. If you're not familiar with this, it's a story about two early followers of Jesus who were walking back from Jerusalem to the little village they lived in called Emmaus. It was a seven-mile journey. Jesus had been crucified. As far as they were concerned, their hopes had been dashed. They were sad. They were disappointed. They were a little confused. They were dejected. And then Jesus draws near to them, and everything changes as they have an encounter with him in their home. And significantly, it was while Jesus shared communion with them. So we're just going to think about that just as we come to take communion. Let's read it together. Verse 13 of Luke 24. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. So that was, that was, they were talking about the crucifixion. They were talking about the hope that they had put in Jesus and how things hadn't worked out as they thought. Verse 15, while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. So this is the resurrected Jesus appearing to them on this road. Verse 16 tells us, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. So when it talks about their eyes were kept from recognizing him, it means that the Spirit of God hadn't yet revealed to them that this was Jesus Christ, which shows us how much we need the Holy Spirit to reveal truth to us and to give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Jesus enters into a conversation with them in verse 17. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, what things? As if he didn't know. He's drawing them into a conversation here. And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God and all the people. And how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him but we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. 
Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And now he opens the Old Testament scriptures to them. Verse 27. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. Here's a a work of the Spirit, an encounter with God. And he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the Scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed, and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road, and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Now I want to refer more to that in, in, in this morning's message, but I just wanted us to get the point at this stage that there was a connection between their eyes being opened and the breaking of the bread. So when they got focused on the cross, that's when they had an encounter with God. So when we gaze at the cross, it ought to help us to see the Father's heart. It ought to help us to put our own lives and the circumstances of our lives into perspective as we gaze at the Father's love and giving of his only Son. As it says in Romans 8, if the Father has given us his Son, will he not with him freely give us all things? In other words, he's already given us his best, his only Son. So I want this to gaze at Jesus today on the cross. I want to gaze, us to gaze at his, the Father's love for us. And I want us to thank him. And I want to ask him to encounter us as we partake of communion today. So let the servers come forward. And I want to lead us in prayer. I've entitled this message, The God in the Middle. And I want us to think about that those times in our, in our lives when we feel like we're we're in the middle, and that is in between a promise that God has given us and the fulfillment of that promise. So that middle part when we're trying to, we're trying to figure out what's going on, and we're contending for breakthrough, we're contending for a miracle, we're contending to see the power of God at work, the God in the middle. That's this, this story that we've, we've read, that, that's what the story's about. It's about a group of Jesus followers who were in that middle part. Well, the promise had actually already been fulfilled in the resurrection of Jesus, but these disciples were slow to see 
the fulfillment of, of, of God's promise. It's a very interesting time dur- dur- during the, the, the ministry of Jesus. In between his death and his ascension, there were 40 days. And during those 40 days, Jesus was appearing on many occasions to his followers, convincing them that he was alive. And I don't know about you, but at times I've thought, you know, you would have expected maybe these Jesus followers, these early disciples, the 12 and the, the wider company of believers to be, after the crucifixion, maybe to be gathered in Jerusalem, almost having like a worship service and anticipation that Jesus was going to be raised from the dead. But that wasn't the case. We find these early disciples perplexed, confused, even frightened. And they just couldn't quite put the pieces of the jigsaw together. Even though on many occasions Jesus had taken the time to say to them, I'm going to die on the third day, I will rise again. And he talks even about going to prepare a better place for them. Many, many occasions he would say that to his followers and still, still they, they couldn't fully grasp what he was saying. And stories like this are included in scripture because Jesus knew too well that we as his followers in between the promise and the fulfillment would be just like these early disciples. That is, we would be of slow of heart to believe. At times we struggle to see God's plans, maybe in the way we should. Or at times we feel we have like all these pieces of the jigsaw sort of all floating about, but we struggle to just put them in their rightful place and to see the beautiful picture of what what God is doing. So God in his grace has given us this really insightful account in Luke 24 into the hearts of his followers and into our hearts so that we might be encouraged. Actually, let's go back to the chapter again and let's read from the start this time the opening section. We've we've already read that middle section, verses 13 to 35 around communion. Let's go back to verse 1 of chapter 24 and let's read some more about the experience of these early followers of Jesus. And we, we, we notice in this passage that it was the women who first arrived at the tomb. And then we read about Peter coming to the tomb also. And let's just let's read these opening verses. But on the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. You would imagine that when they found the stone rolled away from the tomb, it would be like, wow, just like he said he would rise. But no, that wasn't the case. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. Then in verse 4, while they were perplexed, say perplexed. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. 
And as they were frightened, say frightened, and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. This is an angelic visitation they're experiencing here. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale. And they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves and he went home marveling at what had happened. So even Peter was walking away from the tomb. The text said he was marveling. And this word marveling in the original language has negative connotations. And that is that Peter was even thinking negatively as well, trying to figure this all out in his head, trying to make sense of the words of Jesus and trying to reconcile the words of Jesus with his own thoughts and his own emotions, trying to tie all these things together and trying to find some sense of stability and peace. And then we read of Cleopas and the other disciple walking back from Jerusalem. So we have this picture of the the early disciples all gathered and then they scattered and went their separate ways. So Cleopas is walking this road, not one of the 12 disciples, but just one of the early followers of Christ and another disciple who we don't know the name of and they're walking this seven mile journey back home. So they're walking away from the place of promise. They're walking away from Jerusalem. They're walking away from one of the greatest acts, if not the greatest act in the history of the world, the resurrection of Jesus. And they're walking away from it because of unbelief, because they are slow of heart to believe. And we can do the same in our own lives. You know, we can walk away from situations where God is powerfully at work, yet we choose to walk away because we can't see. We haven't got eyes to see and ears to hear what God is doing. And that is why we must be careful that the very thing we're walking away from isn't the fulfillment of what we've been longing for for many, many years in our lives. Because very often when When God begins to work, whether it's in our personal lives, whether it's in our family lives, whether it's in our church life or in our community, the fulfillment of God's promise often comes wrapped in packaging that is different to what we expected. So we already have it worked out in our minds that if God works and he moves powerfully that it's going to look like this or it's going to look like that. And when it comes, because it looks different, sometimes we can be guilty of rejecting it, pushing it to the side, and actually missing out on the blessing of God. 
And what God has sought to teach his followers, Jesus, during his, his, his ministry was he was always seeking to open their hearts, to keep their hearts open, to keep their hearts fresh, to keep their hearts soft to what God wants to do. That we might continually plead to God that we might have eyes to see and that we might have ears to hear beyond our physical sight and beyond our physical hearing. That we might have spiritual eyes that can see beyond the natural and spiritual ears that can hear beyond the natural to see what God sees and to hear what God hears. So here they are walking along this Emmaus road and in his grace, Jesus, the resurrected Christ, he goes after them and he pursues them because that's what Jesus does to his followers. He pursues us. He goes after us. He's not happy that we're walking away from the place of promise in our lives. He's not happy, if you like, that we're, we're, selling, we're selling our birthright for a bowl of stew. And sometimes when we're under pressure, or sometimes when we're feeling a little confused, or if we're experiencing a level of disappointment in our lives, and we can't quite figure everything out in this middle space, sometimes it seems like the easy way out is to walk away and to go our own way in life, and to do our own thing, and to take responsibility of our own lives and say, well, I'm going to do it my way, and I'm, I'm, I'm tired of waiting on God, and waiting on God's plan to unfold, and because of all this confusion going on in my life, I'm going to take control of my own life again, and I'm going to make my own decisions, and I'm going to do it my way. So Jesus pursues them and he draws alongside them as they're deep in discussion and as they're talking between themselves about what had happened in Jerusalem and how they thought that Jesus was the one who had come to, to deliver Israel. You see, they had it in their mind that the Messiah that they wanted was someone who would come and, and deliver them from the power of the Romans. They saw it as a, a, a political deliverance, yet Jesus was all about the spiritual and about ushering in his kingdom. So as they talked about these things, as they walked along this Emmaus road, Jesus just draws up alongside them. And the text says that they didn't recognize who he was. Now Jesus could have very easily have grabbed them and said, you know, Cleopas, Cleopas, it's me, it's Jesus. What are you sad about? But he doesn't do that. He just begins to engage them in the scriptures. And he begins to draw them into a conversation with himself. You see, Jesus is always working on our relationship with him. That's what he longs for more than anything. We are looking at the fulfillment of the promise in our lives, whatever it is we're waiting on. God is interested in that too, but... More importantly, he's interested in this middle bit about developing our relationship with him, about revealing himself to us more clearly, about increasing our faith, 
about planting our, our roots down deeper in him that we might have greater levels of confidence in him so that when the storms come next time or the uncertainty comes next time or the disappointment comes again as it will, that we respond and react to it differently because the character of Christ has been more deeply formed within us. That's what God is always up to in our lives. In every season of our lives, he's always making us more like Jesus. That's what he loves to do. That's what the Father declared at the baptism of Jesus. As Jesus was coming up out of the water, he said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well. Whom I am well pleased. And the Father is well pleased to see the character of his son formed in our lives. That's what brings the Father delight when he sees you becoming more like Jesus. So he draws alongside these disciples and he opens up the Old Testament scriptures and he begins to build faith into their lives because that is what they were lacking. They were lacking faith. They were lacking trust. They were lacking confidence that God is who he says he is and God will do what he said he would do. So faith comes by Hearing and hearing by the word of God and Jesus begins to teach them the scriptures and he begins to show them from Moses and the prophets and right into the Psalms and right throughout the Old Testament that all the things that God had promised Jesus to be and everything that would happen in his life that that was indeed the case and yet they didn't understand that it was Jesus Christ himself who was teaching them. He's the master teacher. So we expect progress in our lives to look like sort of, you know, a gradual increase and then maybe a wee leveling out plateau, maybe a wee dip and then a sharp increase, and then maybe another little plateau. And instead our walk with God often is like zigzag and how God grows us, but he's always growing us into deeper relationship. He's always pulling us deeper into his heart because what he wants is he wants to refine us and he wants to encounter us. That's what Jesus wants to do. He wants to encounter us. You know what I mean when I use the word encounter? That is, he, he, he wants to meet us in a powerful way. He wants our lives to be a series of encounters. And everyone in this room who knows Jesus has had an encounter with God. That's what happened when you got saved. You encountered Jesus. You remember that time? When he first met you and you first met him, he encountered you. He came upon you. He worked in your mind. He convinced you of the truth. He worked powerfully in your life. He broke some stuff off. He opened your eyes to see. He opened your ears to hear. And that resulted in you responding to Jesus and saying yes to him. That was an encounter. But can I suggest to you that that encounter with Jesus wasn't supposed to be a one-off encounter. That was supposed to lead to many more encounters where the Lord comes again and 
powerfully works in your life. Now, there's all different levels of encounters in our lives. Every time we open the scriptures, we're encountering God. Every time we pray, we're encountering God. Every time we worship, we're encountering God. But throughout our lives, there's these life-defining moments when God comes and meets us in powerful ways that marks us for the rest of our lives and actually causes us to walk on a higher level or a higher plane with Christ. They change us forever because God comes and meets us in a special way. It might be in our car. It might be in our living room at home. We've got a cup of coffee and our Bible opened. It might be during a time of worship in church or it might be during a time of worship in the kitchen at home when you're just going about your daily business and you're worshiping God and he comes and encounters you with his presence. And that is what Jesus was teaching these early disciples, that he wants to encounter them again and again. He wants to come and, and meet us in powerful, special ways to open our eyes further and to open our ears further, that our lives might be just a continual encounter with God. That's what Jesus came to give us. So Jesus approaches these early followers in love. He expresses his love to them. He doesn't give up on them when they don't get it. He goes after them because that's what love does. Love just doesn't see a person for who they are, but also sees them for who they're becoming. So if I look at your life, or you look at my life, or I examine your life, or you examine my life, it's very easy to find dirt in people's lives, things that's wrong. But when love looks at someone, love looks at someone not only for who they are, but for who they're becoming. That's what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 7. Love never gives up, never loses faith, is always hopeful, and endures through every circumstance. That's what love does. That's what Jesus does. And that's what he's doing for you. That's what we've been singing today, that he will never let us down. Do you know that Jesus has entered into a covenant with you? The new covenant. And part of the new covenant is that God has committed himself to doing you good all the days of your life. He's always pursuing you. Psalm 23, 6, I think, down toward the bottom of the psalm. Love and mercy shall follow us all the days of our lives. He's pursuing us all of the time. He's a good father who has good things for us. And he won't let us go.
And what he was doing for these early disciples was he was preparing their minds. He was reshaping their minds by feeding truth into their minds. He goes to the scriptures. He breaks the scriptures down. He interprets the Old Testament. And he causes their faith to rise. And he's reshaping their thinking. And that's what God does in our lives when he's preparing us for a fresh encounter. You see, they were going to encounter Jesus in a fresh way when they got to the house in a mess. As they broke the bread, they were going to experience something. Lights coming on. The power of God coming upon their lives. And a fresh understanding of who God is and who they are in God. But first of all, Jesus has to target the mind the battlefield of the mind where we either believe truth or we believe lies. And when we believe lives, we live defeated lives. When we believe truth, we live victorious lives. So he begins to reshape their thinking. That is something that God has been doing in and around our church. Even in preparation for LCF coming across, he's reshaping our thinking about who he is and the way he works and the way we look at other people and the way we look at our community and the way we look at God and the way that he works. And he's helping us to think differently, to become a presence-centered people who focus on the presence of God. Because when the presence of God comes, everything changes. You notice in this story that when he draws alongside them, He's bringing his presence when the presence of Jesus meets them on the road. That their sadness is beginning to be turned to joy. And their negative perspective on what has happened in Jerusalem begins to change to a positive perspective. As Jesus begins to reshape their thinking. But it's about him and his presence. It's his presence that changes things. And he's reshaping our thinking. And sometimes in our Christian experience, we need to have our thinking deconstructed. It's like stuff that we've learned in the past about who God is and the way he works and what the Christian life looks like and what's acceptable and what's unacceptable. And if God works, he has to work this way. Sometimes we have to actually have stuff untangled and replaced with truth. Because what is it that brings freedom? What did Jesus say shall set you free? The, the truth. It's a battle for truth. It's a battle for what we believe about God and what we believe about ourselves. So here Jesus is, is reshaping their minds. He is, if you like, he's preparing a new wineskin before he can pour in the new wine of his spirit. You see, what happens if you pour the new wine into the old wineskin is that the, the old wineskin bursts and it causes a huge mess. So in recreating our mindsets and the way we think about God and reprog reprogramming our thinking, giving us a whole new upgrade, a whole new operating system, the way we think about God, and then we begin to feel greater levels of freedom. Has anyone been developing greater levels of freedom in these past months. Is there anyone here? Yes. Because that's what Jesus is doing. He's taking you to new spaces and places with himself. And by the time he's finished, 
people will not even recognize who you are. Because that's what he's doing. He's making us into new creatures, new creations in Christ. Because the reality is, we're stepping into God's new thing. And we love to talk about that, don't we? And God has spoken that verse from Isaiah over us time and again. Behold, I'm doing a new thing. But here's the reality. We can't step into God's new thing operating in old ways of thinking. We just can't. So God is upgrading our thinking in preparation for what we're about to receive. He's coming to us in love. In fact, Jesus doesn't only come to these disciples in love. He comes to them demonstrating all the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Now remember, the fruit of the Holy Spirit is related to our character. The gifts of the Holy Spirit are related to God's power. So the fruit of the Holy Spirit reveals the character of God. The gifts of the Holy Spirit reveal the power of God. But we have to have the right character to receive what God has for us. We have to have the right type of wineskin. And the process that wineskins go through to be made back in biblical times is often a, a slow process of applying heat and stretching and sewing and preparing. And that's why sometimes that process of, 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 of God almost, if you like, turning our inner world upside down and there's times during this process over the last two or three years where I felt like, you know one of those snow glows that you have at Christmas time and there's maybe a little nativity in there or whatever and you shake it up and it's all those little bits of snow inside. And if you felt like that too, that's what that is. God is rewiring your neural pathways, causing you to think differently, causing you to get off your agenda and onto God's agenda causing you to move away from your old ways of thinking into new ways of thinking for what God has in store for us. And always remember this, God always arrives right on time. Might seem late to us. Might seem like this isn't the packaging I thought this would come in. This isn't the way I thought this was, would look. I'm a little disappointed. Well, let's ask the Lord to open our eyes to see and open our ears to hear what he's doing and saying. And it will surprise us what the Lord will do. So he's coming to them in all the, the fruit of the Spirit because Jesus is the perfect demonstration of the fruit of the Holy Spirit that we find mentioned in Galatians 5. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. He's coming to them in love, as I said. He's coming to them in joy. He's coming to them and imparting his peace. He's coming to them in patience. He does give them a little gentle rebuke. Oh, you fools, you know, slow of heart to believe. But that's just a little prod seeking to draw them in, seeking to, to provoke them into a new way of thinking. He's patient with them. He comes to them in kindness, in goodness, in faithfulness. He doesn't give up on them. He keeps going after them in gentleness. It's the fruit of the Holy Spirit, gentleness. That as God has been gentle with us, we be gentle with others. As God has been patient with us, we be patient with others. As God has been loving to us, we be loving to others. And in self-control. 
And here's the beautiful thing. All of these characteristics of the fruit of the Holy Spirit have become ours in Jesus Christ. Because the very nature of Christ has been given to us. And the old nature has been crucified in Christ. And the new nature of Jesus Christ has come to reside within us. And when we live out of that new nature, when we feed on that new nature, when we abide in that new nature, we find our whole inner being becoming transformed. As we experience these same characteristics that Jesus experienced because Christ resides in us. So it's not about trying harder. It's about surrendering more. It's about abandoning ourselves to this process that God has us in. It's about saying, Lord, you have your way. I give up the kicking and the screaming and the fighting and I surrender. I say, Lord, let's do this your way. You know better, Jesus. Going right back to the Garden of Eden when the first humans thought they knew best. And from then, humanity is still thinking that they know best. And what Jesus wants us to do is, is, is to cooperate with him, is to get in tune with him, is to surrender to him, and just allow him to do what he wants to do, even though it looks different than what you thought it would look like. It's okay to be disappointed. It's okay to admit that you're disappointed or you're struggling or you're a little frustrated. Jesus isn't afraid of your questions. He already knows your thoughts before you speak them out. So be honest in speaking them out to him and saying, Lord, I'm just disappointed. I'm just a little weary. I'm just a little tired. But I'm coming to you with my questions rather than running away from you, the place of promise and giving up on the things that you have spoken over my life. Jesus was setting his followers up for their next defining encounter with him. So they reach the end of the seven mile journey. And they come to the little village of a mess. And watch this, what happens. Jesus acts as though he was going to bypass their house and go on to the, the next village, the next town. That says he was acting as though he was going to do that. Inside, he was burning and he was saying, I wish they would invite me in. I wish they would invite me in. But he didn't force himself into their home. He gave them a little taste of truth and power an encounter, and then he left the decision in their hands. Thankfully, they made the right choice, and they says, Jesus, we want you to come in. You notice that little nugget in the scriptures? He acts as if he would go further and says, it was nice spending time with you. I enjoyed the Bible study. I'm on my way. And here we see something in God's nature and in God's character. God longs to be invited in. He'll not force his way in. 
As it says in the book of the Revelation to the church, is it the church of Laodicea that he's knocking on the door of their hearts? He's wanting in, but we got to open the door and let him in. If they don't invite him into their home, they miss out on this next divine encounter that God had for them. So here's the question. Are we shutting God out in this season of our lives or are we inviting him in? When we invite him in, he will help us to put all these pieces of the jigsaw in place. And it will make sense. If you be patient enough, if you wait enough, if you listen to God and ask him for eyes to see, it will make sense. So they sit down. Jesus takes the bread. He breaks the bread. And as he breaks the bread, something miraculous happens. The Holy Spirit opens their eyes to see something that they hadn't seen the whole way along that road. They notice that this is Jesus. This was Jesus. And everything comes together. All the lights come on. They understand everything that had gone before and why it had happened and all the words that Jesus spoke in the times of confusion. They're all wiped away as clarity comes, as understanding comes through an encounter with the Spirit of God. And you see how the Word of God was preparing them for an encounter with the Spirit of God. And that's what we need as I've emphasized, we need the presence of God. It was when Jesus made himself present in the home that they began to see as Jesus sees. As Paul prayed in Ephesians chapter 1, that we might receive the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. This is after we get saved that we pray for the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. This is for continual eyes to see and ears to hear. Lord, let me see how you see. Lord, let me hear what you hear. Help me to look at this situation and this circumstance the way you see it. It's crucial, friends, that we're thinking according to the Spirit or else we will walk away and miss what it is God has for us. Note what they did. Cleopas and the other disciple, they run back to Jerusalem to tell the other disciples of that Jesus is alive and the great things that have happened. You see, a fresh encounter with God brings a renewed energy, a renewed vitality. The weariness goes and energy comes because that's what an encounter is intended to do, to reveal more of God's heart and God's mind to swamp our thinking and our emotions and our and body, soul, and spirit. Our whole outlook changes. The negativity goes and positivity comes because we're seeing as God sees and we're hearing as God hears. And they run back to Jerusalem. You see, an encounter with God isn't only for ourselves. It's for other people too. That when we encounter God, we begin then to impact other people and we begin to share our story. Let me tell you of how I encountered God, of how I met Jesus. And even when they get back to Jerusalem, we read of the experience 
in verse 36 of how, because Jesus vanished from them in their home, and then verse 36, he comes and he presences himself amongst them again. We see the presence of God again, verse 36. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them. That's what we need. We need Jesus to come and stand among us. And do you understand what I mean when I talk about the presence of God and that there's different aspects to the presence of God? There's the omnipresence of God, which is a theological truth. That is the fact that God is everywhere. Whether we can feel him or see him or know him, he's there. That's what the Bible says, and that is truth. Then there's the indwelling presence of God. That is when we get saved and the Holy Spirit comes to indwell us and he strengthens us and helps us and fills us inside. But then there's the manifest presence of God. And that is when God comes and manifests himself among us or to us. That's what's happening here. Jesus comes and he stands amongst the people. And we've all experienced that as we've been worshiping and we're gathered together that, you know, there's varying degrees of the manifest presence of God among us as we meet. Sometimes we walk away from a gathering, wasn't the Lord really present there? And other times we walk away and we said, he didn't seem so present there this morning. And it's all of our responsibility to be pleading and praying and seeking, even in preparation for coming to gatherings like this, Lord, make yourself manifest amongst us. Show up, touch us, empower us. Open our eyes, open our ears. Let us know your nearness in our lives. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate before them. Jesus speaks his peace into a situation where there's fear and doubt and confusion. Jesus speaks his peace. And you see, when this peace comes, you don't even have to be able to figure everything out in your mind. Do you know why? As Paul says in Philippians, it's a peace that surpasses understanding. And if you're the type of person who has to have everything worked out in your head before you'll allow God to do what he's going to do, I'm sorry to tell you, it's not going to work. There needs to be a surrendering and an invitation for the person of Christ to come and meet with us and bring his peace, which overrides those thoughts and which just surrenders and accepts and allows God to do what he desires to do. Their lives were turned upside down. Cleopas and the other disciple because of an encounter with Jesus. They weren't defined by a moment of doubt, by a moment of weakness, 
by a moment of unbelief, but they didn't beat themselves up with feelings of guilt and feelings of shame, feeling that they had let God down. They just basked and reveled in the goodness and the grace and the mercy of Jesus Christ. They enjoyed his peace and they went on to the next chapter of their lives in what God had for them. You see, God is always looking forward in your life. He's not looking backwards. And we must learn to put the past in the past and look forward to a bright new day and the good things that God has for us. So don't be defined by a weak moment in your life. As the song says, failure is not final when the Father is in the room. Or as Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4, I was knocked down, but I wasn't knocked out. Who's been knocked down? but hasn't been knocked out. I'll put up my hand. I've been knocked down, but I tell you, I'm not knocked out. And you're not knocked out either. You're an overcomer in Jesus Christ. It's okay to be knocked down. Look at Tyson Fury in the first fight. Did you see that knockdown? Everyone thought he was out cold. He got back up. He came back a second fight. Destroyed his opponent. Knocked down, but not knocked out. You see, we're more than conquerors in Christ. It's all to do with his energy in us. Be encouraged today that what Jesus has started, he will finish. I'm going to ask the band to come and we're just going to to sing and respond to what we've heard. And I just want you to open your heart to the Lord and we're going to sing, We Need an Awakening. Maybe we could even go out and, could, could the parents go out and get the kids and bring the kids in for this? How about that? And we'll let the kids enjoy this too. Because God's encountering our kids in these days as well. And we'll pray for an awakening together. Let's pray for a fresh encounter. Lord, we thank you that you're always pursuing us. We thank you, Holy Spirit, that you are a genius that you know the way forward in every situation. And I pray even as we sing, plead from our hearts, Lord, for a fresh awakening. Holy Spirit, would you just fall on us? Would you fall on this gathering? Just increase your presence amongst us, even at the end of our service. We thank you for being with us. We thank you for being with us through the word. We thank you that we sensed you among us you were ministering to us. Lord Jesus, we pray that there will be a sharp increase in encounters with the living God for all of us, even this week. May we come back in the coming weeks and tell stories and share testimonies of how you came and encountered us. God, more than anything, we need an awakening. We need a fresh encounter. We need a visitation from heaven. And even as our kids join us, Lord, we want them to grow up in an atmosphere, a presence-centered atmosphere. Lord, we look at some of the stuff that we've had to deconstruct in our minds. We don't want our kids to go through that. We want them to grow up in an atmosphere of freedom and power. We want them from a very young age to know what it means to move in the power of God. 
to move in the authority of Jesus Christ, to move in high levels of faith. So Lord, just as we gather together as a family now and we just sing this song over our church, over our lives, over our circumstances, over our disappointments, over our city, our communities, over our nation. Lord, come. Empower us. Energize us. Help us to be like Cleopas and the other disciple, to hop, skip, and jump down that road to tell others that Jesus is alive. Lord, we can't do this alone. But with you, we can do all things. We repent of times when we have walked away from your gift, walked away from your new thing because it came in a packaging that, Lord, that we didn't want or didn't recognize. Lord Jesus, we just ask you, we invite you right into the center of this house, this church, and say, come and have your way. Come and do what you want to do. As our friends from LCF prepare to come across in two weeks, we thank you for this momentous time when two churches in one city come together to see this city transformed through the power of Jesus Christ. We thank you we're on the brink of something special, something awesome. Lord, we lay hold of it. We say more, Lord. We say, come Holy Spirit. We say, Lord, cause us to live our lives from the place where we have been placed. That is the place of authority, seated with Jesus Christ in heavenly places. Oh God, there's a sense of anticipation and excitement as you reshape our thinking. Lord, form within us the character of Christ that we might live and think and act as he lives, thinks and acts. Christ in us, the hope of glory. So thank you, Lord. Thank you for what you're doing. Thank you for what you're going to do. We abide now, we rest, we hope, we look to you as we sing in closing. In Jesus' name.